we spoke over the last couple of weeks, Jesus is drawing real close now to entering Jerusalem. Last week with uh, blind Bartimaeus, that was the last uh, healing miracle prior to entering Jerusalem. Not the last miracle, there will be more coming. Uh, but prior to entering Jerusalem and that uh, culmination of his ministry and opening the eyes of the blind. I'm going to begin just by reading Luke chapter 19. Beginning in verse 1, I've titled this, Jesus a Seeking, uh, a Sovereign and Seeking Savior. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. Implication, Jesus and Zacchaeus had not met previously. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house." And he hurried and came down and received Jesus gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What a picture of our earlier scripture reading. Well, as we observed last week with with Bartimaeus, We find another man this week who cannot visibly see Jesus. You know, Bartimaeus, he couldn't see because he was physically blind. Today we find Zacchaeus, he can't see because he's physically short. So Zacchaeus also had a physical barrier to visibly seeing Jesus. And his vision is obscured. And it's due to the fact uh, everything is, there's a big stir going on in this town of Jericho now uh, because Jesus has in fact restored the sight of Bartimaeus. So there's an increasing awareness. There is an increasing energy among the people because a local man who they knew, one who used to sit by the road and beg, who was blind for a long time, he is now walking into Jericho following Jesus with the rest of the people. And verse 43 of the last chapter, chapter 18 that we studied last week, uh, tells us they're all rejoicing. They're all praising God because they have become witness to a divine miracle, the healing of the blind man. Boy, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the Old Testament prophets, that they didn't prophesy or predict that the Messiah would be verified by the sign of relieving lower back pain? or arthritis ache, or or other healings with with unverifiable results, the likes of which many who call themselves healers promote themselves today. Um, You know, many are accompanied 
many today by miracles that can be fabricated results, some of which can be imitated by an aspirin, folks. Those aren't miraculous uh, healings. With Jesus, the clinically blind see. It's verifiable. Very difficult to fake that, by the way. Very difficult to fake blindness. And such healings, you will find, are never achieved today. Never achieved today. The clinically blind do not see. Those who are dead, like Lazarus, those who are dead do not rise. Lepers aren't spontaneously cleansed today. And all of Jesus' miracles were immediate and complete. Immediate and complete. And for a brief time during his ministry, we have studied previously in Luke that um, in chapters 9 and 10 especially, that Jesus specifically delegated this power, this authority over disease and, and even spirits to select individuals. He delegated it to them. Uh, we've studied before, what does that mean? It means that somebody had to give it to them. It isn't some latent quality that we all have that we can all just heal whenever we want to. We never see a blind person healed today. We never see a person with a withered or missing limb suddenly and spontaneously restored. Uh, There are no examples today of such miracles ever happening. Ever happening. Uh, Therefore, Christians are not to allow themselves to get get roped in and deceived by uh, healing cults that promise uh, that they're doing the exact same thing that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. As we learned last week, clearly, uh, the healing of blind Bartimaeus, it, it demonstrates that Jesus fulfills, fulfilled the prophetic expectations of the Messiah. He was the one they were waiting for. In about one more week, the new, the new covenant is going to eclipse the old. That was our message last week. The new covenant now will eclipse the old covenant. The blind now see. So, so don't be duped into believing that the story of blind Bartimaeus, that that is there, that that is present in Scripture to to teach that we too are supposed to heal in the same way. We are not Christ. We are not the Messiah. We aren't accompanied by signs and miracles in the same way. We're not um, experiencing or uh, observing them in the same way. That's a really bad interpretation to go in there and just say, well, Jesus did this, then we can all do it too. You hear that a lot when you get out into, into different circles. Um, that doesn't mean, as you'll learn if you come to the membership orientation next week and the week after part A and B at 9.15 right behind us, uh, though we are cessationists and we say those, those sign miracles do not occur today, that does not mean that we don't believe that God can heal or does. That doesn't mean that. What we have is, is that the people on television aren't doing it, all right? They're roping people into that which is falsified. We never see limbs restored and things like that uh, today. Nonetheless, nonetheless, here's here's the, the kicker. Miracles still happen. Miracles still happen. Well, no, we don't find empty graves. 
there, there are no missing limbs of soldiers who have returned after war fully restored. We don't see that either. You don't see it in remote areas of the globe. I've known missionaries with New Tribes Mission over in New Guinea. You know, it isn't happening there either. Not those types of miracles. But we have become witnesses to something miraculous. And our response should be the same as that of these people who have seen Bartimaeus healed. We should worship and glorify God. Um, folks, that, that is exactly, by the way, what we do here on Sunday. When we come to worship, we are here to worship and praise God for the miraculous that He has done. We become witnesses to, to the miraculous transforming power of the gospel that has changed lives where those who once were blind to Christ and to the cross are now repentant, now sorry for the sins that they have committed, and they strive against sin. If you are a Christian today, you've experienced it in your life as I have experienced it in mine. If you are a Christian, you have had a heart and a mind that is made alive to God. Made alive to God. Folks, that is a divine miracle. That is a divine miracle. So today, we, we are going to get a glimpse of a camel passing through the eye of a needle. One that we studied here just in the last chapter. The camel's name? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus the camel. He's a tax gatherer in the district of Jericho. In fact, in fact folks, he is a chief tax gatherer. That's, that is no small position to achieve, by the way. Uh, Jericho, as we learned last week, it was a very prosperous agrarian community. Uh, agriculture was the primary industry of that day. Pretty important one in every day, right? If people don't eat, it doesn't matter how many new Lexuses you got in the driveway, right? Food is important. There's no different in this day. Um, so Jericho due to, to this wealth, uh, began to grow to have uh, a lot of interest in the region. A lot of people were wanting to move there, were wanting to establish themselves there because they had this diverse and abundant supply of, of flowers and fruits and uh, uh, honey, balsam, even cypress trees that were used for building materials. They, they had a very diverse economy. The name Jericho, as we learned last week, meant place of fragrance due to all the beautiful flowers that grew there. It was a very nice, fragrant, beautiful place. Due to its, its lower elevation as compared to Jerusalem and surrounding areas, the climate was moderate. People sought to move there. Others who were passing through would love to stop in and smell the roses for a while. It's a great place to stop off if you were on your way to the Passover in Jerusalem. As a commercial trading center then, it, it had a booming economy. There were many people. There was much valuable property and lots of merchandise to be purchased and taxed and taxed. History tells us that to become a tax gatherer under Rome, you, you bid to be awarded that position. And, and once having pledged loyalty then to, to Roman authority, publicans or tax collectors, they maximized their profits by extracting, uh, extracting fees beyond 
what Rome desired. Beyond their obligations to Rome, there were many levels of taxation. Looked a lot like us, actually. There were many levels of taxation in the society uh, of tax gatherers or the guild of tax gatherers, whatever you want to call it. It was structured somewhat like a pyramid. You work your way to the top. The longer you remain in, the harder you work to enroll others under you, the more pressure that you exert, the higher you move up the scale, up the ladder, uh, where you will receive tribute from other tax collectors and others working under you. The more you have under you, the more that you make. All right? Well, Zacchaeus, our buddy Zacchaeus, he was at the very top of that pyramid. He was a chief tax collector in the thriving district of Jericho. Therefore, verse 2, it's just very short and succinct. At the end it says, and he was rich. The understatement of the century. Uh, He was rich because you don't advance to the top of the pyramid under Rome unless you're really good at what you do. You never make it that far unless Rome is satisfied very nicely. Very nicely. The point is that Zacchaeus had excelled. He He had earned a large sum pressuring people. And then he pressured people who were under him to to pressure more people. He wasn't a man who others appreciated very much. It's really sad, really, because he accumulated all of this. Accumulated all this wealth, but gathered very few friends. Not many would have wanted to hang out with Zacchaeus. He wouldn't have been a popular figure uh, in Jericho. And in fact, it might have even been, we don't know for sure, but it might have even been a little hazardous for him to go out in public. Um, this would not stop him today. It would not stop him from going out to get a glimpse of Jesus, who he has heard has come to town. Everybody in Jericho wants to see Jesus. Word has spread that he arrived that the old blind man who used to beg by the road has been healed. So the streets are filling now, filling to capacity. There were a lot of people, a big stir. For this reason, nobody really really noticed Zacchaeus. Part of the reason is he only stood about that tall. We don't know exactly how short, but Scripture makes an emphasis that he was a little guy. He, He was trying to see who this Jesus was? Who, who is this? For, for the crowds were thick. He was vertically challenged. For Scripture says he was small in stature. Just a little guy. So verse 4 says that, that wanting to see Jesus, Zacchaeus ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For Jesus was about to pass through that way. You know, when you think about it, it's kind of a humorous scene kind of funny really you got this rich guy nobody liked couldn't see heads up a tree renowned figure in town now crawling up a tree to get a look at something that would be passing by what could he accomplish in a tree what are you going to attain in a tree it's a little bit ridiculous to think about it though what would you do 
just to get a glimpse of Jesus. If you think back to your past, that is assuming that you're a Christian today, and you recall when the grace of God first started to, to nudge you, first began to draw you out of the darkness and into the light, if you remember, you started doing some funny things. I know I did. Eventually, your friends probably thought you were acting a little stranger as you, as you drew closer to him as well. In fact, your friends might have thought that you're a little bit crazy. Look at Carolyn there. When Jerry met the Lord, she's like, Mom, he's crazy, telling her on the phone. My husband has gone crazy. Not long afterwards, she followed and came to Christ as well. Praise the Lord. Um, Folks, there's a mysterious season in the love affair with Christ when you really start to come to understand who he is and what he did when you get a glimpse of him. Um, Even when you're not yet saved, but anybody been through this stage? You're not yet saved, but you know that you're going to be. Something is telling you that you know it's going to happen. There are early workings of the Holy Spirit upon the human heart, even prior to salvation, when we still haven't met Him, where, where God is nudging us closer to that day, closer to that event of meeting Christ, and we're just trying to get a glimpse of Him. I just get a peek at who this Jesus is. There's an old hymn that goes, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things on earth, they'll, they'll grow strangely dim in the light and the glory of His glory and grace. So Zacchaeus here is trying to, to feast his eyes on the Savior. I'm able to look back now. I'm sure you can as well. I can identify periods in my childhood. Many years before I ever came to Christ. Uh, and then other periods later, even in a season of sinful rebellion, uh, once a prodigal of God myself, when even as I remained lost, I, I knew inside my soul that I belonged to Him. Anybody experienced that? Even when I was really young, had not yet trusted Christ. John Calvin himself writes about this phenomenon and the curious Zacchaeus. Listen to this. This is great. This is among the crowd he's speaking here now, Calvin says. Some were led, no doubt by vain curiosity, to run even from distant places for the purpose of seeing Christ. But the event showed that the mind of Zacchaeus contained some seed of piety. In this manner, before revealing himself to men... The Lord frequently communicates to them a a secret desire by which they are led to Him while He is still concealed and unknown. And though they have no fixed object in view, speaking of the sinner now, of no fixed object in view, God does not disappoint them, but He manifests Himself to them in due time. In the Lord's timing it all comes to fruition this is the day this is the day that jesus came looking for zacchaeus and he found him found him in a tree verse 5 when jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him zacchaeus hurry and come down for today i must stay at your house 
You know, think about that. Jesus came to the precise location that Zacchaeus was and looked at him, looked him in the eyes, and even called him by name. Zacchaeus, come down. I can only imagine uh, Zacchaeus, you know, responding as he looks back and, me? I'm Zacchaeus. I mean, I'm the tax collector that nobody likes. You, you want me to come? I'm a sinner. Have you ever had to admit that to God? Me? But I'm a sinner. But the divine son has the ability to reply, folks, I know exactly who you are, Zacchaeus. I just called you by name. In fact, you look at Jeremiah 1 verse 5. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart as holy. He consecrated him, set him apart before Jeremiah was even born. Well, does God only do that for Jeremiah? Is that just Jeremiah who was set apart from his mother's womb? Or did God also do it with John the Baptist? We see an angel in Luke chapter 1 announced to his father, Zacharias, exactly how God was going to use the child before the child was ever born, before even conceived in the womb, saying, telling Zacharias that your son is going to be the forerunner to the Christ. And by the way, God named him. He said, you will call his name John. So are Jeremiah and John anomalies. It's just them. Well, King David wrote uh, in Psalm 139 to God, it's saying, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, says David, and in your book were written all of the days that were ordained for me when there was not as yet one of them. Pretty powerful God. Pretty powerful God. Is life in the womb precious to God? You bet it is. You bet it is. Scripture assures that my name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And in fact, even as I remained a prodigal in that season, a prodigal of God, there was never a time when my God did not know me. Never a time when He didn't know the day, even though I was still waiting for God's timing. Once I was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. This close encounter, it serves as kind of Jesus' finale before entering Jerusalem. Zacchaeus serves as a climax of multiple themes in Luke. None, none more significant than the purpose of Jesus' ministry on full display that you see in verse 10. This is the purpose right here. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Zacchaeus, come down. Any reader attentive to Luke would have recognized verse 10 in this encounter with Zacchaeus points back to chapter 15 where Jesus told three parables about searching for that which is lost. One was a lost sheep. Another was a lost coin. A third was a lost son. And on each occasion, when that which was lost is found, rejoicing erupts. Rejoicing erupts. The shepherd rejoices over his found sheep. The woman rejoices over her found coin. The father rejoices over his found son. And they all burst forth in celebration, every single one of them. For there is joy in the presence of angels, said Christ, over one sinner who repents. Zacchaeus, come down. All of three of these examples from Jesus were lost, but the owner searched until they were found. People might say, you know, well, the prodigal son, you know, he kind of found himself. You know, he got in touch with his innermost being, did some soul searching, conscious reflection, self-discovery, a little psychology maybe, and he, he just came to his senses at one point and returned to his father out of his own free will. No. In verse 32, that father declares, this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and what was lost has now been found. Again, here too, we look as we have over the last several weeks, we found that this is displayed, uh, being found is completely in the passive. That means you don't have anything to do with it. It isn't something that you find inside of you. It's something that comes from outside of you. The son didn't find himself. And there's never existed a time when the son did not belong to his father. And whatever it was that provoked him to return, or whatever movement of the Holy Spirit caused Zacchaeus to run on up ahead and get in a tree, climb up a tree, it was ultimately Jesus who looked up and called him by name. It was Jesus who came knocking, just as the Old Testament prophesied. I will come and I will search for them myself, says the Lord. And I will find them. Who's doing the seeking in the passage? Well, verse 10 leaves no room for imagination. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The Son of Man is the one seeking. This is why Jesus looked up. This is why He said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down from there. I must tonight stay at your house. I must stay at your house. You know, the English translations appropriately reflect the Greek, which presents this statement as a necessary obligation. Jesus says, I must stay at your house. That term translated must, it's the same Greek imperative seen in John 4, where it says, as Jesus was leaving Judea and traveling up to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Now, you guys are pretty sharp. You've seen maps. Everybody knows you didn't have to travel through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. In fact, most Jews, most self-respecting Jews, would evade Samaria and go around to the east. So you didn't have to go through Samaria. 
But Jesus did indeed have to pass through Samaria because there was a lost, a certain lost woman there who would be drawing water out of a well right about noon, all by herself that Jesus had to meet. Here's a question. Is salvation, you know, a combination, a random combination of, of time, space, and chance? It just kind of happened. Or is Jesus a sovereign and seeking Savior? Scripture says He is. I don't know how you get around it. And you might ask me, say, well, well Pastor, are you trying to say that sometimes, you know, there's a divine appointment? That when you come to faith, that it's something that God has worked out and that sometimes it, it all kind of falls together that way because God's involved? My answer is no. It's not sometimes. It is every time that somebody gets saved. Salvation always works that way every time. For every Christian, there's come a, a God-ordained face-to-face meeting with Christ. And even though Zacchaeus lived a, a life of sinful idolatry, he loved money. The Son of God speaks through the crowd, and, and there's only one person that he is seeking that he calls out by name. And it's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, hurry down from there. I must stay at your house tonight. Why is the question, well, the reasons answered in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. Whose house? It's Zacchaeus' house. Salvation has come to him because the Son of Man came to seek and save Zacchaeus. That's what he did. That's what he did. Jesus seeking and, and saving unique, special, particular individuals is it's often referred to as particular redemption. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon referred to it as particular election. Um, it's a salvation that is particular and it is specific. Whatever you want to call it, whatever term you want to say uh, or call it by, God seeks and He saves because He is sovereign. He is a sovereign God. By contrast, this is just by contrast now, because there's really only two ways you can look at it. Either God intervenes and and, uh, and uses his sovereignty to intervene, or he's hands-off completely. It's one or the other. It isn't like, well, it's partially. Either God is sovereign, or man is sovereign. So by contrast, Methodist and Wesleyan theology, that's what they call Arminian. And that proposes Jesus doesn't seek and save anyone particular at all. Only that he died on the cross to make salvation generally possible. Such does not believe the Son of Man seeks and saves that which was lost. Don't believe that. Or if Jesus does seek, he doesn't do a real great job of it, and some slip through. Or if he does save, it's an incomplete salvation and a failure. So Arminian theology has an incredibly difficult time reconciling these passages of the Bible says that God is sovereign, that He's in control, that He has chosen, and we are His elect. They have a difficult time with that. But if Jesus came with the purpose to seek and to save Zacchaeus, if that was His purpose, and you, and me, and the other Christians, as particular objects of His divine affection while you were still dead in your sins, 
and lost. If God has done that, as Scripture assures us He has done, how does knowing that, how should knowing that affect your worship? How should your response um, of worship and adoration be affected? You know, you should be saying, Me? But I'm Zacchaeus. I'm a sinner. Why would he come to find me? What, what's special about me? Nothing. Nothing. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to be special. You don't have to be beautiful. You don't have to be rich. God seeks and saves. Um, why is nobody else in the crowd called out by name? Not representatives calling out by name. Well, this is what the crowd wants to know. And when they saw it, it says that they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Well, there's a a whole crowd surrounding him. Why didn't somebody else invite him to dinner? Calvin, again, he's golden when he writes this. It is thus that the world disregards the offer of the grace of God, but complains bitterly when it is conveyed to others. Isn't that something? <laughs> you ever experienced in your family or, or friends that you have, uh, acquaintances, old friends who don't, don't want anything to do with Jesus, don't want anything to do with the church, don't want to show up on Sunday, don't want anything to do with it, nothing with worshiping, but boy, they're torqued that little brother or little sister is a Christian now, right? Why you? Because I know you, they say. There's nothing special about you. I say, exactly. It's amazing grace. People will tell you, in our opinion, you've always been the worst out of all of us. Exactly. The grace of God is amazing. Have you ever wondered why Jesus so often seeks to save those who are really lost? I mean the desperately lost. Why does Jesus, when it, when it comes to amazing grace, and John Newton is a, is, yeah, wrote that song, a slave ship captain, who was abusive in every way, yet God calls him. Why does Jesus so oft intervene in the lives of the worst sinners? There was a prostitute I know about that was about to be stoned. A murderer named Saul who was on the road to Damascus. A sexually immoral woman at a well. And even this tax collector. Why would God save him? Folks, I, I'm, you're visiting today, your first time around hearing this. I assure you, don't ever say to yourself, don't ever say to yourself, Jesus would never save me if he only knew what I've done. Don't ever say that to yourself. Because he already knows what you've done. And he will save you. And himself, having lived in the flesh, Christ realizes the things that you've done and the things that I've done, they're pretty awful. They're pretty awful. At the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that among them, among those Christians, there were some pretty awful people. Scripture says they used to be fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and the covetous drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. And the Apostle Paul concludes, such were some of you. 
but you were washed, but you were sanctified. Again, that means consecrated or made holy, set apart to God. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all the people in Jericho, why does God save Zacchaeus? Don't make any sense if you look at it rationally. There's better people. Why did he save me? Can't make sense of it. In Scripture, we're not provided a list of criteria of why God chooses to save some. But as you read Scripture, one reason becomes clear. Unlike Pharisees, not like Pharisees, sinful people won't take credit for their salvation. No way I'm taking credit for it. Not one little iota. We can easily confess, you know, I was completely insane. I was insanely lost. I mean, I was super lost. We can confess, I, I was bonkers for sin. Everything that I did, sin defined me. Drunkards will say, when I was in drunkard, everything in my life was around booze. Couldn't wait till the next time I could party. My whole social life, my whole identity revolved around it. Can't wait until the next time. The same is true for homosexuals. A homosexual will tell you how before Christ, his whole life was characterized by, by sexual exploits. How, how it saturated his behavior and his decisions. It defined his identity. Likewise, a covetous person. Covetous person is someone who, who loves other people's stuff. Really can't get enough stuff. They're, co- they're idolatrous. It consumes them. And if you ask their friends, all of them would say that that sin defines them. Think about it just for a second. What was yours? Or how many did you have that defined your behavior? A second reason God saves the worst of sinners is that so when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, people around you are going to witness an amazing change. A big change. People who know us will be astonished at how God has transformed us from the inside out. And the evidence is repentance. Repentance means a change of mind. A turning. A turning of your mind, a turning of your heart, a turning toward Christ, a turning away from sin. And repentance is the transformation we see with Zacchaeus. He was a swindler and a cheat. His whole life had revolved around money and concocting ways of extracting more of it. And suddenly after one encounter with Christ, his mind is completely changed. Folks, this is repentance right here. The people were grumbling because Jesus is going to stay at the house of Zacchaeus. So hearing that crowd, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. He has turned. He has turned. A repentance, that is a fruit of salvation. It's guaranteed for it. You can't have salvation without repentance. Old Charles Ryrie at Dell Seminary used to say they're like two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Salvation and repentance. You have to have it. Zacchaeus doesn't, he's looking here, he doesn't like how his life has brought reproach 
upon the name of his Savior. He's going to stop it right now. So he abruptly gives away half. And folks, with Zacchaeus, half would be a lot. It would be a lot. He says, I'm done. I'm done with the way I was. Folks, folks, don't blindly accept anyone who says that they've given their life to Christ, but nothing changes. Just don't blindly accept that. It's unlikely. Scripture doesn't give that picture, that your life doesn't change when you become a Christian. And if Zacchaeus, if he, if he defrauded anyone, which, which he surely did, he promised, I'm going to restore them four times. Four times. The fact that he did this publicly is suggesting to everyone, you know what? You can test me. You can test me. How can we explain a man forsaking a fortune that has taken years to amass? How do you explain a sexually immoral person who suddenly stops fornicating? Or a thief who suddenly stops stealing? Or a blasphemer who immediately stops blaspheming? Or whatever sin used to define you. How do you explain that you've stopped? There's only one explanation. It's the power of God that has transformed the heart miraculously. Jesus said, that which is not possible with man is possible with God. That's Luke 18, verse 27. Zacchaeus is the camel. The camel that has passed through the eye of a needle and a rich man has just entered the kingdom of God. He is the fulfillment of chapter 18. He has passed from death unto life. The shepherd has found his sheep. The prodigal has returned home. Today is a day to celebrate for salvation has come to this house for he too is a son of Abraham by faith. Mission accomplished, folks. A couple lessons to take home. God's searching and saving is very, very personal and specific. It's not indefinite and general. When He saves, He calls us by name. Has He called you by name? Has he called you? Uh, it is an irresistible call of grace and his sheep hear his voice. Well, scripture is very optimistic. He's not going to lose any of his sheep. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, John 10, 14. And the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep Follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. I've got a video in a minute. This is just fun. I got this from Matthew Rubin this week. I couldn't help it. We were, I'd already kind of structured this passage being in at the end here. And this is going to be a video. I'm going to have to preempt it. There were three different people who were not the shepherd who have tried to call the sheep in. The sheep aren't even given the people a time of day. They're out there yelling, come, come. They're out, the sheep are out in the pasture, and they, they don't respond at all. Don't even bleat back at them. Then the farmer steps in, and this is the farmer making his call. Oops. 
and the sheep know him. That's Jesus. We're the funny looking ones behind him. Thank you, Matthew Rubin. That was awesome. Again, the call of the shepherd is very specific and irresistible. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. Zacchaeus, the lost sheep, has been found. Secondly, every, everyone, folks, all of us have a past. Don't be handicapped by your past. Jesus knows your past. If you hear his voice today, he calls upon you and he welcomes you to come and follow me. Forget about the past. The day of your calling is a divine appointment. Quit beating yourself up over your past. Come and follow him. A sinner who turns away from decades of sin to follow Jesus, folks, that is an incredible testimony to Christ. Incredible testimony of Zacchaeus. You know, think of the apostles, especially Paul the Apostle, uh, who was a murderer when he was Saul, turned his life around. Look at how God used him. A transformation of the life. It's the greatest evidence of spiritual conversion. Uh, Third and finally, notice how God has been working through your life the whole time. Probably from way back. And you heard something. You heard he was coming to town. And you responded, um, let that be an inspiration to worship. Folks, God is your Father. If you belong to Christ, God is your Father, and He's been waiting for you to return home for a long time. Why don't you come? It's right to erupt in celebration, declaring that which was lost is found. Today is a day of celebration. Let's pray. Father, whew, to think of the love that you have for us and, and how you came your very self to finish what needed to be done. As you walked the earth and called uh, many to follow you, Lord, and then offered up your life as a sacrifice for sins. Father, hallelujah. That uh, the lost have been found, that you have uh, died for our sins in the cross, and that you rose again. Lord, strengthen us. And I'd ask that anyone here who thought that Jesus would never want them because of what their past holds, that you'd uh, encourage their hearts to know that they need to answer that call and follow him. In Jesus' name we pray.